If you'll find your place in your Bible with me this morning at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be reading in just a few minutes uh, the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. This is a Sunday that we're beginning a new series of messages, a four-part series of messages that we have entitled simply Fraud Alert. Probably uh, you know what a fraud alert is. Hopefully none of you have gotten a fraud alert from your banking institution. Or maybe you've uh, gotten an email or a phone call and you knew that the email or the phone call was from a scammer. They were trying to get personal information out of you so that they could uh, use that information and uh, get something that you have or to purchase something in your name. But just in case there are some of you who aren't familiar with a fraud alert, it involves a false representation of a matter of fact whether that's by words or by conduct or by false or misleading allegations or by concealment of what you should have been disclosed. And it's intended to deceive another so that the individual will act upon it to his or her legal injury. So we have an understanding of what we mean when we talk about a fraud alert. I didn't know if this was true until recently. I'd heard it all my life, or a lot, of, a lot of my life at least. And I went and checked it out, started doing a little investigation. And it relates to how you teach people to identify counterfeit money. Uh, they tell us that they teach federal agents to identify counterfeit money, not by looking at all the different counterfeits that there are, at least not initially looking at all the different counterfeits that there are, but by teaching them the original showing them the original bill, things like the printing on the bill or special uh, watermarks that are in the paper or the kind of paper it is or something to do with the numbering. And you get so familiar with the original that it makes the counterfeit stand out when it comes in front of you. But what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks is we're going to be looking at the original so that you can see the counterfeit, so that when you see a counterfeit, you'll understand that there should be a, a fraud alert going off in your head. There should be some kind of an email or a text coming to your phone, fraud alert, fraud alert, this is a scam, this isn't the truth. And we're going to be talking in four areas. Today we're going to be talking about no other God. And then we're going to be talking about no other name. And then no other foundation. And then no other gospel. I want you to follow along with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, you probably recognize that chapter 20 of the book of Exodus is the record of the Ten Commandments. It is the record of the moral law of God. There has never been a law given, a moral law given like the Ten Commandments that has impacted the world, that has impacted society, that has impacted our own country. You find a repeat of the moral law of God given in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You find these same Ten Commandments. And we're not going to be looking at all 10 of those. We're just going to be focusing on this first commandment today. But I hope that you'll teach your children these 10, the big 10. That's not a conference where you play football. 
Well, it is a conference where you play football, but it's not the Big Ten that I'm talking about. You want to teach your children the Big Ten. You want to learn the Big Ten and make sure you know them in your own heart and in your own mind. Three things that I want you to notice about the verses that we read here just a few minutes ago. First of all, I want you to notice what is revealed to us. What is revealed to us. In chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God. In that statement alone is the bedrock foundation of Scripture. That is the bedrock foundation of the revelation of God to mankind. There is only one Lord. There is only one God. He is revealed to us the one indivisible, almighty, all-sovereign, all-knowing one who is unique in all of history. There is no other one like him. The, the Jewish people, even to this day, those who are practicing their faith, repeat twice a day, in the morning and the evening, what's called the Shema. Now, they've added additional verses to this memorization and to this quoting, but at the heart of the Shema is what's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The word Shema is the Hebrew word that means to hear. And it's the very first word of this verse, Deuteronomy 6, 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Can you say amen to that? Amen. He is the one almighty, indivisible, all-sovereign, all-knowing God of the universe. I want you to notice with me as you think about that, about the two names that are used for him. I am the Lord. In most translations, at least in my translation, when you see the word Lord with all capital letters, it's referring to the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that's most closely associated with God's relationship with his people. In Scripture, it's this name under which God makes his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's under this name that God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. It's under this name that God promises to them that they're going to have a land that flows with milk and honey in the land of Canaan. This name is the name that reminds us that he is the redeemer and that he is redemption. He is the one who keeps his covenant with his people. It's a name that's found many times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and something that's so very important. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. The word God is the name Elohim. That's the plural, El is the singular, Elohim is the plural of that name. You find that name first used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's the name that's associated with his power. It's associated with creation. Now, just look back a page in your Bible to chapter 19, and you see the power of this name in verses 17 to 19. Just before, or as God was delivering the law to Moses, just before that, he comes down on this mountain in a powerful way. Notice verse 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with Elohim. And they stood at the foot of the mount. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. 
Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Can you imagine? Every piece of ground around you and under you is moving beneath your feet at the presence of Elohim. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and Elohim answered him by voice. So that when we see this name, we're being reminded of his omnipotence. We're being reminded of his control over the universe, that he is the one who sustains everything there is, such that when he says, have no other gods besides me or before me, the natural response when you think about who God is and what his names represent about him, the natural response ought to be that we fall before him in worship and in reverence and in honor for who he is. But somehow it never dawns on some people that God is the all-powerful creator and the sustainer of all things. As a matter of fact, people tend to admire God sort of like they admire Shakespeare or some other famous author. But there's a huge difference in the two. If Shakespeare entered this room, we'd probably all rise, we'd all begin to clap, and we'd all honor him for his literature and his writings. But if God entered this room, we'd all fall on our faces in awe and reverence for who he is. Because when he says here, I am the Lord your God, and he goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. He wants you to understand who he is. He wants you to see the revelation of his person. Keep your place here in Exodus, but turn with me for a moment, if you will, over to Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to read you some verses, and I'm going to show you just how foolish it is to worship other gods and not to recognize the one true God, the monotheistic God that we serve and that we honor, one God represented in three persons. Notice, if you will, again and again in chapters 44, 45, and 46, he says that there is no God but himself. He says it twice in chapter 44. He says it five or six times in chapter 45. He says it again in chapter 46. But I want you to listen to how foolish it is to serve false gods, beginning in verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Verse 12, the blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water in his, in his faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one with the chain, uh, excuse me, with the chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and breaks bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worship it. He makes it in a carved image and falls down to it. 
He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am worn. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Down to verse 19. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes a deceived heart. You hear those words? A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Do you understand what he's saying? How foolish is it for us to worship that which doesn't have power and doesn't have meaning and can't care for itself, little alone take care of you or take care of me? There is one all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient, unchanging, immutable God. That's Jehovah. That's Yahweh. That's Elohim. That's the God that he's talking about and he's revealing in these verses of Scripture to these people, the Jewish people that are his people, so that they will know who it is that they're talking about. We're talking about the one true God. Of course, whenever you talk about this, there's always somebody that objects and says, well, I know some atheists, and those atheists don't believe in or worship any God of any kind. But do you know that's just simply not the truth? They may not worship your God, but every atheist has his own God of sorts. Webster's New World Dictionary defines religion as a specific system of belief or worship built around a god, or a code of ethics, or a philosophy of life, so that the atheist does, in fact, have a god. It's his own code of ethics, or his own philosophy, or his own material things, but everybody worships something or someone because all of us know that we need someone greater than ourselves to guide us and to help us. It's Psalm 14, verse 1, who says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. By fool, he doesn't mean somebody who's non-intellectual. He doesn't mean somebody who's ignorant, though that may be the case in, in some situations. By fool, he means those who are impious, those who are sinful of heart, those who deny God. He's a fool to do that because you can look around you and tell there has to be a God. I'm reminded of a cute story. It's about an old Quaker and a rationalist who were having a conversation one day together. And the rationalist said that he didn't believe in God because he couldn't believe in something that he'd never seen. And the Quaker, using his old English style, said, Hast thou ever seen Paris, France? The rationalist replied, No, but others have, and that leads to my belief that there is such a place. Ah, said the Quaker, I think I now see why thou art say what thou art saying. May I ask thee if thou hast seen thy brains? The rationalist sharply replied, No. 
The Quaker quickly replied, Hast thou ever met anyone that has seen thy brains? Again, the answer was no. The Quaker, with a smile on his face, then asked, Reckon thou hast any brains? <laughs> God comes to the nation of Israel and says, I am the Lord your God. And through them, he says it to every single one of us. He is the one true God of the universe. And all of the others are a fraud. All of the others are a scam. All of the others are fake. Someone asked an Arab man once, how do you know there's a God? He answered, how do I know whether a man or a camel passed my tent last night? Well, obviously, you know by the footprints, right? And God's footprints are everywhere around us. Just walk outside the door and look up. Just look around you at the people who are sitting close to you. And you see the evidence for the reality of God. Secondly, I want you to notice what is remembered. And we're going to spend just a few moments here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You want evidence for the all-powerful God? Just look at what God did for the nation of Israel in setting them free from the Egyptian bondage and then pay attention carefully to all of his gracious provisions to them every single day. You know, the Jews had been in bondage to Israel for 400-plus years. They had been praying for that entire time for God to come and to deliver them, and they had begun to wonder whether God could or whether God would, in fact, break this yoke of the Egyptian bondage. But then God arrives on the scene and says, I'm going to show you who is God. You realize that the ten plagues of Egypt are all focused at the polytheistic gods of the Egyptians? Every one of the plagues is an attack at what the Egyptians thought was the reality of some false god, some fraud god. And it was confirmation first that they had a god who cared about them and he was alive and that he was worthy of their worship. But second, it was a reminder that the Egyptian gods were absolutely nothing whatsoever. The Egyptians, like the nations around them, worshipped a wide variety of gods. They attributed their powers to natural phenomena that they witnessed in the world around them. There was a God of the sun and a God of the river and a God of childbirth and a God of crops. Events like the annual flooding of the Nile that fertilized the croplands were supposedly evidence of their God's power and goodwill. But I want to remind you of what Pharaoh says when Moses comes to him. Pharaoh responded to him by saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And thus began the challenge to show who was the one true God. And think about it. God delivered them out of Egypt miraculously. He took them through the parted waters of the Red Sea. He closed the waters of the Red Sea on the Egyptian army and drowned them all. He fed them in the morning with manna. He fed them in the evening with quail. He gave them water that came out of the rock. 
He gave them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day by which to lead them. He met them at Mount Sinai and gave them a law that included a moral, a civil, and a ceremonial component. And all of that was to distinguish them from all of the other nations of the world. And this is the God that we're told in the very first of the Ten Commandments that we're to revere and we're to reverence and that all others are a fraud. All others are a fraud. All others are a scam. But then thirdly, I want you to notice what is required. He says, I am the Lord your God. That's the revelation. Then he reminds them, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. But then he gives the requirement. You shall have no other gods before me. These idols of the Egyptians, they were grotesque mixtures that were portrayed as both men and beasts. And over the centuries, Israel had been tempted on occasion to worship these gods. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is right before the giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses reminds them these words, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There is no other. In other words, all other gods, little g, all other gods are frauds. They're all frauds. Now, I doubt any of you are carrying in your pocket or you have in your house a wooden idol a stone idol, or that you have a metal idol of some kind that you bow, bow down to and you worship as a course of your religious life. But the reality is all of us battle with this matter of idolatry, and there are to be no other gods before the one true God. You see that little phrase, before me? That's an interesting phrase. He's not telling us that we're supposed to have God first and then we can have our second God and our third God and our fourth God and our fifth God. That little phrase before me is a Hebrew idiom that means before my face. In other words, he's telling you there's to be no other God beside me or in addition to me. There's nobody else. In other words, God wants you to know that he doesn't want to be your top God. He wants to be your only God. Did you hear that? He doesn't want to be your top God. He wants to be your only God. And you understand that there's things in life that you just aren't supposed to share. If you have a unicycle, well, you know that can't be shared, right? And if you have a piece of confidential information, that's not supposed to be shared either. Or the sexual love between a husband and a wife must not be shared with others. You understand that this matter of a relationship with God and following the one true God, he will not share you with others or his glory with others. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. You're saying, Pastor, I got it, I got it. You're telling me that we're not supposed to have idols, but I don't have any idols. I don't have any little nooks in my house where I keep little idols, where I bow and I, I go over and I praise them for the things that they do for me and they give to me. Well, maybe. Jim Carrey, who's a well-known comedian, was interviewed by 60 Minutes on one occasion. 
and he invited the cameras to one of his most beautiful and private spots. It was the place where he called what he called the center of the universe. It was where he went to escape the world. And while he was there being interviewed, he talked about his feelings about God. This is what he said. This is where I hang out with Buddha, Krishna, all those guys. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Christian. I am whatever you want me to be. It all comes down to the same thing. They are all the same God, and it's this conviction, he says, it's this conviction and spirituality that makes me happy. Can I just tell you that Jim Carrey may be a highly paid comedian, but what he just told you about God isn't the least bit funny. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing in our lives should take the place of the one true God. Not our possessions, our careers, our relationships, our hobbies, our sports, our entertainment, our goals, our greed, our addictions, or anything else you might put on that list. Most of us can understand why this is the first and foundational commandment of the Ten Commandments. Because it's the greatest, are you with me? It's the greatest challenge we face in our lives every single day. Not with little molded idols, wood and metal and stone, but with the idols that are around us that have taken and usurped the place of God in our lives and we've given the authority over our lives to those things and we have supplanted God and given him a lower place in our lives. Somebody in defining what it means to be idolatrous said that it's, or idolatry is, is that it's, a, it's something when anyone with a hierarchy of values, anybody who has a hierarchy of values has placed something at its apex. Whatever that is, is the God he serves. Whatever is at the apex of your life, that is the God that you serve. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, whatever you, must, whatever you make the most of is your God. Uh, Dr. Lehman Strauss, who Mary and I were privileged to hear on several occasions, incredible pastor and preacher and author, he said, idolatry is anything that relegates God into the background. Anything that relegates God into the background. Leslie Flynn said, some of the gods of our lives are chrome-plated, Others involve bucket seats, high-powered engines, large estates, stock markets, the latest fashions, large or small screens, antiques, and gardens. Dr. W. Stafford Reed of McGill University wrote, The principal false god of our times is our standard of living. We are so concerned with material possessions that we forget they are the gift of God and that there are other things more important. As a matter of fact, for a lot of us, the almighty dollar has replaced the almighty God in our hearts. And really, where our currency has on it the inscription, in God we trust, what it really ought to say is, in this God we trust. Simply put, an idol is anything we place ahead of God in our lives. Anything that takes God's place in our hearts. 
It might be power or prestige or prominence or pleasure. It could be family or friends or finances or folly. It can be sports or school or success or self-worth. It's sometimes control and comfort and convenience and career. But nothing deserves the top billing of our lives other than the one who is the Lord our God. He is deserving of first place in all of our lives. As a matter of fact, some of those things that I just named to you, in and of themselves are not that bad. They can actually be good in their rightful place. Others of those things are always evil all of the time. But the question is, what or who has the top priority in your life? And there are the gods of this world that are constantly playing for our hearts, trying to woo us away to themselves so that we will push God aside and we will place them as the God of our lives. And too many of us have been guilty, myself included, of allowing that to occur. You say, Pastor, how can I tell whether I'm really following the Lord with all of my heart if he's first place in my life? Well, let me just ask you some diagnostic questions. You know, you'd do that if you went to a doctor, wouldn't you? You'd sit down with him, he'd ask you some questions. Well, tell me about this, and what about that? And he'd ask you some questions. So let me ask you some questions. Who or what do you live for? Who or what do you live for? Marriage, your children, your job, your house, your beauty, for sex, for image, for comfort, for sports, for your career. Not all of those things are bad. But good things become God, when good things become God things, even those become bad things. Let me say it again. When good things become God things, even those things become bad things. Amen? amen. That should have been a good place for a loud amen. amen. They're inadequate gods, they're frauds. How about this question? Who or what can you not live without? Things that you just say, I have to have, and if I don't have, those things that you say you just have to have may well be your God. Or how about the question, who or what is at the center of your life? What does your life and schedule, what does your life and schedule orbit around? I was thinking about orbiting. So I went and I looked up the eight planets. You know, we lost one. The scientists decided it wasn't really a planet. It wasn't a planet like the other eight were. So we lost him. I feel sorry for him, don't you? You got Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. You got these eight planets that are doing what? They're orbiting around the sun. If the earth gets a little too close to the sun, just moves a few inches closer, we get too hot and burn up. If it moves a little further away, we get too cold and we freeze. And it just keeps orbiting around the sun. And they all stay in their places while we're orbiting around the sun. The earth is spinning on its axis. And we get the different seasons that we're beginning to enjoy even now. Let me ask you a question. What does your life 
in your schedule orbit around? If you had to choose between the Marshall University football game last night and being in God's house to serve the Lord and worship the Lord today, which would you have chosen? By the way, I'm glad Marshall won and WVU won and Georgia won. And did I mention the Braves won? What does your life in your schedule orbit around? Who has to call you and say, I need this, and you drop everything, including your God things, to walk away? You see, the reality is that there is to be no other God in our lives but the Lord our God. The one who is the one God, the sustaining God, the all-powerful, the immutable God, the one who is just and righteous and holy and merciful and gracious, the one who is love, who is truth, who is light. He is to be the only God, not just the top priority God, the only God in our lives, and he calls the shots. You know, every once in a while, somebody will ask me a question. This isn't exactly how the question goes, but this is what they mean. And they say something to this effect. Well, I know God says to do this, but I don't understand that. Can you explain why I should do it? And I have not done this yet, but I may at some point, I'm getting to the age where I feel a lot more confident doing these kind of things. At some point, I'm going to say, because God said so. You don't need any other explanation, that, but, but that God said so. You know why? Because he is Yahweh. He is Elohim. He is the one true God. And you don't have to have an explanation for everything he tells you to do, to do what he says. It just sort of goes with the nature of being God. You got that? It just sort of goes with the nature of being God. When you say, preacher, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to get rid of the idols that may be in my life? Well, number one, you're going to receive Christ as your Savior if you haven't done so. You need to receive Christ as your Savior. By the way, if you're taking notes on the app or online, there's a little square box. If you click on it, it expands, and you can put these additional notes right there in that box and then email them to yourself so that you'll have them permanently. Number one, you're going to receive Christ as your Savior. The very first thing is to say no to the idol of pride in self-sufficiency or whatever sin it is in your life and say that my need as a sinner is to come to Jesus and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Number two, you're going to follow him in believer's baptism. You're going to stop being ashamed and stop being afraid because those things become your gods and they're frauds. And you're going to step out and you're going to profess publicly that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Number three, you're going to make Sunday your anchor day. Sunday is my anchor day 
This is a day when I gather for the worship of God, and I don't let anything get in the way. Occasionally, we'll take vacations, or providentially, something may occur. But otherwise, I will be with the people of God on the Lord's day. It's a time for us to stop and to reevaluate our lives and to think about our lives in light of who it is that we worship. I mean, if we recognize who God is, shouldn't it naturally lead us to bowing before him in his presence? Number four, we're going to draw near to God every day. We're going to get our Bibles out, and we're going to spend time reading and spending a few minutes every day in prayer. It helps us to get everything in tune where it needs to be. Number five, we're going to plug into a life group. We're going to get involved in a life group. We're not going to just drift through life. It's not just about studying the Bible in a life group. It's about doing life together and needing each other. And in doing that, you help to avoid the idolatry that so often overtakes us. Number six, you're going to get involved in serving. You're not just going to sit and watch. You're going to say, where is my place? Where can I put my hand to the plow? Where can I use my giftedness for the cause of Christ? And number seven, you're going to evaluate your your priorities regularly. You're going to stop periodically and just say, Lord, have I let something else supplant you and usurp the authority of my life to become a little g-god in my life? And number eight, you're going to rededicate yourself when it's necessary. You remember the days when we used to have the mourner's bench and people used to come and kneel and they rededicated their lives to the Lord and they said, you know, I've not been living like I ought to live and not been living for the one for whom I ought to live. And you come in with tears streaming down their faces, broken over their sinfulness, broken over their waywardness. They come and they get right with God and they rededicate themselves. And if you haven't done it, I've done that numerous times over the course of my life as a believer in Jesus. You didn't have to do that? I've done that numerous times over the course of my life as a believer. There was a man that purchased a statue at an auction, and he placed it on his desk in the den. A few days later, his wife moved the statue to a table in the living room. Why why, why do you do that? Moved the, uh, the statue to a table in the living room. Well, the man was taking it back to the den when his little girl asked him, where are you going to put God now? Let me ask you a question. Where are you going to put God now? Where where are you going to put God now? Are you going to put him in his rightful place and say, Lord, everything about life I look at through the, the, the vision of you and your word, everything about life, my worldview, everything about life I see through you. Nobody has the authority over me first but you. Nobody else is my God. You are alone, my God. If somebody says, pick up and move across the country, the first person I ask what he wants me to do is God. I don't ask my banker if he thinks it's a good idea or my family if they think it's a good idea. I ask God, what do you want me to do? Listen, there's a lot of frauds in this world There's a lot of Christians that are getting scammed out of the blessings of the Almighty and the peace that they could have with God because they've allowed something else to supplant God and to usurp his place in their lives. 
it's time for us to stop and say, no other God. Say it out loud with me. No other God. He doesn't owe us an explanation. But aren't you thankful that he showed us himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and showed us his love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his salvation. It can be yours today.